Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 167. I vow to feed all hungers. We're joined this week by Zen master Bernie Glassman to explore socially engaged Buddhism as a valuable form of practice. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype with a very special guest, and his name is Bernie Glassman. Bernie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and to speak with the Buddhist Geeks. My pleasure. And just a little bit of your background, though I suspect a lot of people have heard your name in the Buddhist community. You're a Zen master in the lineage of Maizumi Roshi, who was one of the first sort of Japanese pioneers of Zen in the West. And you're also an author of several amazing books on socially engaged Buddhism and on Zen practice. Um, You're teaching currently, I understand, at the Maizumi Institute and also at Harvard Divinity School. So that must have been a cool job to land, (laughs) teaching at Harvard. Well, it turns out that a number of years ago, somebody endowed a Buddhist chair at the Harvard Divinity School. And they did a search to find somebody to hold that seat, and they found a a woman who was a Tibetan scholar. And the first year she was there, she found out that the students were all interested in socially engaged Buddhism. So she started to develop that kind of a track and asked me if I would do some teaching along that line. So I did. It's periodic, but it's fun. Nice. That's very cool. And... I suspect she asked you because you've got a long history of being involved in the, right at the forefront of the socially engaged Buddhist movement. I understand in 1982 you founded a company in Yonkers, uh, New York, and then that became sort of the outreach for a lot of other really amazing projects. And hopefully we'll get into some of that. So basically, though, that you were really an important person sort of pioneering some of these ideas. And I thought it'd be fun to ask you how you got into socially engaged Buddhism? Is that something that's always been an interest for you of contributing back to the collective? Or is that something that sort of developed after you'd started practicing Zen? Both. I grew up in Brooklyn in a family that was uh, Jewish progressive. So I grew up in the milieu of of, uh, social engagement But then I got involved in Zen, the study of Zen, actually quite a while ago, 1958. And by 65 or 67, I had decided to be a Zen monk and devote myself to Zen practice, as I knew it then. And finished my formal training, became a teacher in, um, oh, about 70 four or five actually was started teaching in 1970, but formally around 74, 75. But then in 1976, I had an experience which changed my whole idea of Zen practice. And, and that was, I was riding in a car and I had an experience of all of the hungry ghosts in the world. And by hungry ghosts, 
people and things being unsatisfied, being craving. And my experience at that time is that that was all aspects of me. All of this was nothing but the oneness of life and, and was who I was. And a vow came up to serve all of those hungers. And that led me to go deeply into socially engaged Buddhism and not do what I had thought prior to that experience, which was staying in the Zen meditation hall and working in with people in koans and different kinds of Zen practice. I now started to think, how can I work in all aspects of society to help reduce those cravings and those unsatisfactions? And so from that time, there was a big turning point in, in my life. And I started to develop what I call socially engaged Buddhism as a form of practice. I define practice as being things which lead you to experience and actualize the oneness of life, the interdependence of life. So I wanted to develop upayas or ways of expedient means or types of teachings that you could do your social engagement as a way of realizing the oneness of life. Not, not in a dualistic way, not like I would go do my meditations and my whatever I was calling the Zen practices and then go back into the world and work with others. But I wanted to eliminate that duality and do the socially engaged Buddhist work as a way of obtaining not only satisfying the needs of people, but uh, as a way of helping people to realize the oneness of life. Beautiful. And it sounds like you didn't throw away the Zen practice, but rather it's part of something larger. Sure, because, you know, the Zen practice led me to realize the oneness of life. And if that's the case, then everything you see is aspects of that oneness. And, and just like in yourself, if your hand is bleeding, you you don't just say, well, I got to do my practice. I can't bother with the bleeding hand or from hungry, I, I should forget about the hunger and, and just do the practice. you got to take care of all those things. And so everything that I was seeing, whether they were homeless people or conflict going on, inner city fights or wars or whatever, those were aspects of me. And how do I make that my practice? Uh, so it was the deepening of the practice. It was expanding the venue from being just the meditation hall to all of society. And connected with that, I understand one of the projects you're really passionate about right now and working on a lot are these things we're calling Zen houses. And I understand there's several of them scattered all throughout the northeastern part of the United States, including the one that you helped start originally. The original model was developed on what you started in Yonkers. I was wondering maybe if you could start by saying a little bit about the original projects and how that developed, and then maybe we could get into some of the other new Zen houses. Sure. We need a little history. In, I think it was 1987, somewhere around there, I did a, my first uh, street retreat. That is, I went to live in the streets and took some people to live with me in the streets. It was a one-week period. It was raining the whole time. It was during Holy Week, which is Easter, Passover, Buddha's birthday. They all come around that time. And at the end of that week, what I realized is that there were no 
Buddhist or Dharma groups helping us in the streets. The only support that there was out there was from the Christian world. So at that time, I said, I'm going to start Dharma centers that would work and serve the local community. It's the main case. People go to a Dharma center to improve themselves, to to become enlightened, whatever they think that means, to become stable. I wanted to have Dharma centers where that was the case, but the main focus was serving the local community, the, the local needs. I started in Yonkers, New York, which is a very poor area of uh, Yonkers was the poorest part of Westchester County, which is a very wealthy part of New York. And Yonkers has the highest per capita homeless in the country. In a few years, it got another distinction of having the highest per capita AIDS in the country. So I started to work there, and the biggest need in that community was homeless families. And I went into a holistic model, building permanent housing, creating jobs, working with issues of addiction, with broken up families, with all the problems that you find if you work with the homeless or the very poor. And I spent uh, a fair amount of time doing that in Yonkers. And during that time, we actually, in Yonkers, due to our efforts, the homeless population went down by three quarters. And I, I looked at a holistic model, looking at the whole, all the aspects of, of the needs of people, people that wanted to get out, out of the welfare system, and what was it that was keeping them from being able to do that. We built permanent housing, we created jobs, we created childcare, we created a place of housing for people with AIDS, a health center for HIV folks. We did the whole picture, working with broken up families, with addiction uh, that's still happening. It's called Grayston, G-R-E-Y-S-T-O-N, in, in Yonkers. After I left, it kept growing, and uh, I still go down there about once a month to mix with the people living there, people being served. There are about 180 people on staff now. Most of them came from the streets, a lot of ex-drug dealers. and So that's a rather large, and that sort of engrossed me for quite a number of years. And it's just a couple of years ago that I decided that now is the time to go on a smaller scale and try to create Dharma centers, which I'm calling Zen houses. And eventually there will be maybe Dharma houses or Buddhist houses, because it's not just for Zen folks. But I'm calling them at this point Zen houses, in which Zen practice is going on, for the people that are serving or training people how to run those kind of houses, and the main issue being how to take care of the community, how to do assessments to find out the needs of the community, the needs of the families, the needs of the people, and how to help get them jobs and train them in jobs, create businesses. And doing all of this from what I call a spiritual basis. And by spiritual, I mean the realization and actualization of the oneness of life. So how do you do those kind of works such that in the midst of doing them or being served by them, you're led to realize and, and actualize this oneness? So I've spent a lot of time on kinds of ways to do that. We just started the Zen House. I don't like to call it a movement yet. I hope it becomes a movement. That is, I hope 
many people copy what I'm doing, and that's actually happening. But with the first one we started was in the Appalachian, in, in Pennsylvania Appalachia, training people to garden. There's an organic garden called uh, Ahimsa Farm with different projects in the Appalachia. And we're putting a lot of energy into our mother house, Zen House, which is I'm located in western Massachusetts, a small place called Montague. That's where the Maizumi Institute is. And we have a mother house Zendo here, and we, and we have now a mother house Zen House. We're serving meals to people in poor towns. This is the Appalachia of Massachusetts, the area where we live. And on Buddha's birthday, in a couple of weeks, we'll be opening our first community meal at our facility on a Saturday, and we're leading up to doing it every Saturday, then eventually every day. In our area, as I said, very poor, there are no meals served on the weekends, and most families are afraid to bring their kids to a soup kitchen. What we are creating is it's a soup kitchen, but not really, because it's going to be a fun place for families and kids. There'll be music, there'll be toys, there will be hikes, there will be making puppets, people will take home puppets, we'll have puppet shows, we'll have a resident doctor, chiropractor, massage, so there'll be a wellness center as well. So you, it would be a place where people would, instead of being afraid to go to, will wait for the time where they can come to get their meal because they'll also get medical checkups and, and there'll be all kinds of fun things for the kids. We'll have bands playing and all kinds of stuff like that. So I, I hope that model spreads through the Dharma world with people doing that kind of thing. That's fantastic. While you're describing this, I'm, I'm really reflecting on how that sort of thing impacts the communities you're in. I'm wondering how it does or how you've seen it impact the people in the communities. And also, how does it impact the people that are serving the communities? I'm just wondering what it would be like to be practicing meditation intensively and also really engaged in this type of work, like how that maybe would be different than just if I were practicing meditation. Sure. In Zen, as you know, there are Cohen study developed and different practices, uh, different ways of Zen meditation developed. And a key goal, though, is to come to an experience of what we call the source of life, or the, the state of not knowing, represented by Varachana Buddha. No fixed ideas. So you have all these phrases like letting go, and, and as the uh, Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland would say, off with the head, you know, the letting go practices. So... Part of our work, when people come to serve or to be involved, obviously they're coming with a lot of conditioning as to what a homeless person is like or poor people are like. So part of the work first is to, to train in how to do this work without any conditioning, how to greet everybody, whether it's the server or the people being served, as a beautiful aspect of life and without labeling, oh, that person is homeless, or that person was a drug addict, or that person is a, a dealer, or forgetting all of the labels we have, how to work from that place. We actually have three tenets of the Zen peacemakers. The first is the state of not knowing. So we do a lot of work in bringing people, plunging them into that experience of not knowing. 
And the second is bearing witness, that is staying in that, you know, becoming, grokking, what, what it is. What's the kids like? What are the people like? What are the servants? Grokking the situation. So we provide practices for doing that. If you can do that, our third tenet just comes naturally, and I call that loving actions uh, service. For example, when people go on the streets with me, uh, the first time you're on the street, you have no rational way of figuring out what's happening. So you are, you're plunged into that place of not knowing. And then we stay in the street, so you're bearing witness to that. And out of that comes loving actions. There's been nobody that's been with me on the streets, and I've done street retreats around the world, certainly hundreds of maybe thousand people that have gone with me in the streets. Nobody has gone on the streets and then been able to look away when they see somebody on the streets that's homeless. They always will go up and say, how are you doing? What's your name? That is, love comes out rather than avoidance, rather than a loss of dignity. You give dignity to everyone and everything you see. That just naturally comes out of that kind of practice. Mm. And how have you seen it impact the communities that you've been in? How has it changed the lives of those that you are serving? Oh, it opens it up. It's, it's sort of fascinating. I, I call it clubs. We all belong to clubs. And we tend to invite only the people that think the way we are into our club. So the Democrats invite the Democrats, the Republicans invite the Republicans, the poor hang out with the poor, the rich hang out with the rich, the geeks will hang out with the geeks. (laughs) We all hang out with those who have our similar interests. So when you start working in the community at large, all of a sudden that window opens up. And you're bearing witness to so many different aspects of life. So you brought it, you enlarged. Therefore, that becomes a way of becoming at one with, with everything, you know, because that's what you're doing. You're not staying in a, in a small group. One of the things I do is I also, I've trained a little as a, a clown or a trickster, more like what you see in the Native Americans, uh, the coyote. And... There's a wonderful book called The Trickster in which it says that the trickster's world is the world, the cracks between these clubs. So when we form clubs, the way we form them is we don't invite certain people in. And the ones we don't invite in, we've got to figure out what to do. And society does different things from avoidance. That's the most common. We just avoid those people to the extreme, like Hitler did, we'll kill all the people that are different than us. In between, you've got beating up of gays, you've got lynching of blacks, you've got prisons, you've got all kinds of systems for dealing with the people that don't fit your club. And the trickster or the clown works in with all of those aspects that don't fit your club. So in a way, my Dharma teachings of helping to realize the oneness of life is working with those parts of yourself that you have expelled, either by avoiding them or worse. And do you find for people that maybe have been involved in Buddhist practice, but haven't really ever engaged in this type of social engagement, do you find that there are certain things for people that keep them from engaging in that way? I mean, you're talking about the clubs, and I could certainly see that in my own experience. But I'm wondering if there are other things that keep people from, from wanting to engage or make them afraid to do so. Yeah. 
One of the books I wrote is called Instructions to the Cook. It actually chronicles the the work I did in Yonkers at Grayson and, and gives the Buddhist values behind it. And there's a number of themes in that book, one of which is to take the ingredients you have and make the best meal possible and offer it. That is not to work with the things you don't have, but work with the things you have and offer them. And when I went on a book tour, when that book was published and, and they sent me on a tour, so many people came up to me saying that these were Buddhist practitioners and they said that reading the book gave them the freedom to do things that they had been told by their teachers and by their peers that you can't do anything until you're fully enlightened or until you're enlightened to some whatever. So I think in the early days there was pressure on people not to get involved in social engagement. In fact, when I started to do this in a very big way, I was heavily criticized by many teachers, and this is a long time ago, but many people said that you can't do that. you got to just stay in your club, just meditate, or do other things, as if there were any of them that were just meditating. They were all working in one way or another, whether in Madison Avenue, or advertising, or business, or whatever they were working in. But they were afraid. They thought it was not appropriate to be doing things until you were fully enlightened or enlightened to some stage. And I I don't know what those stages are. And I pushed the idea that where you are, what you are doing right now, just look at what your ingredients and do something. And the very doing, the offering of a meal, that is if you take the meal, and that's the metaphor I use for the book, if you take your ingredients, you know, you go to the refrigerator, maybe there's only a few things there, some bologna, some bread, maybe some lettuce. You could say, well, uh, there's not enough of the right ingredients, so I won't do anything. I won't make any meal. Or you could say, I'll take what I have, make a meal, offer it, and then look for more ingredients. If you offer it, all of a sudden, people will arrive, and they'll pitch in, and they'll start offering and it grows. So, yeah, I think there was a lot of prejudice in the early days in the Buddhist world that uh, we shouldn't be doing things like socially engaged Buddhism. Hmm, That's really interesting. And I know, kind of connected with this whole topic, your Zen Peacemaker is organizing the summer a big gathering of Western socially engaged Buddhist activists, and it's a symposium that's being held in Massachusetts. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that conference or that symposium and sort of what the intention is behind it. Sure. Um, I'm getting up there in years, and I decided that I want to put a fair amount of my energy into promoting socially engaged Buddhism. And I started to look around for who's doing and doing what. It was not so easy to find out who is engaged in this way. And when you mentioned socially engaged Buddhism, people normally thought of the Asians. They thought of Thich Nhat Hanh, of Dalai Lama. And I knew that there were many people in the West. And by West, I mean everywhere outside of Asia. I knew there were many people doing socially engaged Buddhism, but who knew who they were? So I decided I would create a symposium and invite people in. And I start off with inviting what I called the pioneers. These were people I knew. They were all older folks who had been doing it for a while. 
And then I started looking for others. And then people started calling me. So we now have 60 presenters, 60 people that are doing all kinds of socially engaged work. And they'll be coming together. Many of them will never have met each other. So this would be an occasion for them to meet each other. And then it's also an occasion for people who want to work in those areas, want to do this kind of socially engaged Buddhism. They can come and meet people that have been doing the work. So it's almost like a, a job fair. They could come, they could just be inspired, or they could say, hey, I'd like to volunteer, or do you have jobs the way I can actually work in these? So it, it's sort of gathering a clan. And we had to limit the number of people because people kept asking, can we come too, can we present? The idea is will be to do it hopefully on a yearly basis. And the next one that I do, what I want to do is bring the generations together. So we'll have panels on ecology, on contemplative care, on prison work, on, on uh, conflict resolution, uh, mental health, all kinds of work. The next year I want to bring, each panel would have half the younger generation, half the older generation, that kind of mixing. So part of my joy is sort of connecting people together and bringing people that don't normally mix because they're in separate clubs. <laughs> so to create bigger and bigger clubs. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.